How's everyone doing? Okay, wonderful. So good to see you in here. So good to have you back, uh, especially when in this series, um, really multifaceted, looking at the image of God in man. Uh, um, and so we'll be plunging into more in the depths of the fall today. But before we do that, let me go ahead and pray for us uh, so that we start off right in our services here. Heavenly Father, Lord, we come before you today acknowledging who we are in your presence as undeserving sinners who have nothing but sin to commit themselves to God. Uh, Help us, O God, to understand who we are as unrighteous people in the sight of a righteous God. Help us to see who we are so that we might appreciate who you are and what you have done in your Son, Jesus Christ, on our behalf. That God demonstrated his love for us in this, then while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Help us to exult in that truth in our heart and our soul and to wrap the arms of our faith around it and cling to that beloved truth. And we ask you to help us now in this hour. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, we are going to be talking about the effects of sin in the fall of man. The effects of sin in the fall of man. And so if you are here, last time we were talking about how God made man in the image of himself so that God's greatness, so that God's glory would be reflected through all of creation. Even the Psalms will tell us that creation preaches the glory of God. It proclaims it. It expresses the fact. It reflects the fact that it was made by God. And so what is established in the beginning of the Bible is that the ultimate purpose of man, the end of man, is to glorify God, to worship God, to enjoy God, and to do that forever. And so the whole purpose of man is what we established last time is that his whole existence is wrapped around worshiping God and glorifying God. But there's an issue. What is the issue? Sin. And that's what we'll talk about today. We're going to talk about the effects of sin in the fall of man and make some brief observations about that. Ecclesiastes 7.29 says this, Behold, I have found only this, that God made men upright, but they have sought out many devices. That word means many schemes, many inventions. It's as if they were not content in their original state and they sought to find satisfaction elsewhere. And if you want to if you want to kind of define what exactly that means, We can read from Romans 1 that another way of stating what Ecclesiastes, what Solomon is saying, is Romans 1.21, that even though they knew God, they did not honor Him as God or give thanks. But they became futile in their speculations, in their understanding, in their mind. And their foolish heart was darkened. Professing to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the incorruptible God for an image in the form of corruptible man, and of birds, and four-footed animals, and creatures, and crawling creatures. 
And so we'll get into the, some of the effects of this, especially as it pertains to who we are in Adam before uh, we are savingly united to Christ. In the garden, as, as many of you all know, that Adam represented every member of the human race. And so by virtue of our union with him, being in Adam, we incur the penalty of his sin. And so death spread to all men because all men sinned in Adam. And we see that in Romans 5. If you want to turn there, uh, go, I want to go ahead and read a couple of verses with you. Really the foundations of the federal headship of Adam. Adam we've, one of the, we can make one of the foundations for this doctrine. It's found in Romans 5. Starting in verse 12, but I just want to show you the proof of what we're talking about, that in Adam, because of his sin, we incur his guilt. Every person who Adam represents. And so let's read from Romans 5, verse 18 and verse 19. So then, as through one transgression, that's talking about the original sin of Adam, there resulted condemnation to all men. Condemnation to all men from this one transgression, from this one transgression. In verse 19, For as through the one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners. And so Adam being our representative and head, we belong to him as his descendants because of this fact, because the reality of this truth, we partake of his life or death by imputation. And so because Adam represented humanity, all of humanity inherited the guilt and effects of sin. Okay, and so we're going to get into some of the effects of that sin and what we see uh, man and the, the the nature of man. So today we'll talk about the depravity of man, the inability of man, and what his state looks like as an effect or as a, as a cause of the, as an effect of the fall. So our first, we're going to be talking about the doctrine of sin just to kind of get into our conversation today, into our teaching today. And so understanding who we are by nature is of the utmost importance. And so uh, question for you, what is sin? How do you define sin? I heard a bunch of stuff out there. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> one, someone to interpret. That's right. Uh, uh, one person. Yes. Transgression of the law. Anybody else have a, a, a summary or a different way of saying that? Sin is also defined as the contradiction of God's glory. Amen. Romans chapter 6, verse 3. Okay. Right. That's right. That's right. That's right. Did you raise your hand? Did somebody over here? No? Okay. Yes, exactly. Missing the mark, falling short of the glory of God. It's something that you do continually. Something you do continually. Um, like like y'all said, sin is lawlessness, 
First John 5.17 says, All unrighteousness is sin. Wade and Grudem says, It's any failure, like kind of what Amelia was just saying, any failure to conform to the moral law of God in act or attitude or nature. And so sin is any act or attitude that is contrary to what God requires of us. That can be stealing a physical act or it can be coveting uh, a a spiritual transgression of God's law. Um, uh, Another would be anger, something in your heart. It's not a physical act of sin, though it is a spiritual act of sin. Or it's an attitude of of one's heart. uh, Where the Bible says that if you have looked at a woman with lust in your heart, you have committed adultery. And as we know, this is a crime against God and it transgresses his holy law. And so uh, this is how the Bible usually speaks about the definition of sin, that, that Paul, when he is seeking to demonstrate the universal sinfulness of man, he appeals to the law of God. And that's what you see in Romans 2. For the Jews having the law and the Gentiles having the works of the law written upon their hearts. And so we need to understand, it's of vital importance to understand who you are by nature, what sin is, how you have wronged God, those things, this, the doctrine of sin and everything that it entails is, is of utmost importance. My next question is for you is, why is it important to understand the biblical doctrine of sin when trying to understand the biblical doctrine of salvation? Why must you understand a doctrine of sin if you're trying to understand the doctrine of salvation? Brian? No. Mm-hmm. Amen. It'll frame whether or not you have a proper anthropology versus a, a, a proper understanding of, of who God is. Amen. Amen. Anybody else? Yes. It makes salvation the good news. Yeah, that's right. That's right. That's a great answer. Anybody else? That's right. That's absolutely right. Without a biblical doctrine of sin, you can't understand the doctrine of salvation. Uh, the biblical doctrine of salvation, it rests on the foundation of the doctrine of sin. So the, the infrastructure of the doctrine of salvation, it rests on this, this, this initial uh, foundational doctrine, the doctrine of sin. Albert Martin says this, that Christianity is essentially a sinner's religion. And I love that because Christianity is a sinner's religion. Uh, we find proof of this in the, works of, in, in, in the words of Christ when he says that it is not those who are well who need a physician, but those who are sick need a physician, right? I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners, right? Christianity is a sinner's religion. It's for sinners. It's for those. It's not for the righteous. Jesus didn't come for those who are self-righteous, who think that they haven't committed sin, but those who are sinners. And he came to call them to repentance. And this is what you see in the apostle Paul. He also confirmed the exact same thing. It is a trustworthy statement deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save who? sinners. That's good news for you and I. He came into the world to save sinners. So speaking on the doctrine of sin, J.C. Ryle in his book called Holiness, which is a great book. I recommend everyone get that book. Just the, 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 the fundamental doctrines of Christianity are fully explained with great light and, uh, and really savoring truth in that book. But he says this though, 
The plain truth is that a right understanding of sin lies at the root of all saving Christianity. Without it, such doctrines such as justification, conversion, sanctification are words and names which convey no meaning to the mind. Without reference to sin, how do you understand justification? Without reference to sin, how do you understand uh, regeneration, justification, sanctification? And he says, The first thing, therefore, that God does when he makes anyone a new creature in Christ is to send light into the heart and show him that he is a guilty sinner. And this is how God works in the initial state of salvation. God shows a man who he is. And so I submit to you that if you want to understand the redemptive operations of the economy of salvation, you must understand the doctrine of sin. Uh, You must understand man's depravity, the plight of man, the condition of man. And all of the integral, the fundamental aspects of man's salvation, they presuppose his very own sinnership before God, right? So speaking about regeneration, this is why you must under, this is why you must know there are a lot of people in our land today, liberal scholars, and Armini, who, some who hold to the Arminian theology, um, a, a liberal theology of man, uh, a liberal anthropology, who man is, uh, what he is, what is he guilty of, is he bad, is he good, is he just kind of a little tainted, but he, he really can please God in his own flesh. I want to remind you that everything that God applies to sinners presupposes their own sinfulness. So speaking about regeneration, what does regeneration presuppose about the sinner? <laughs> he he does need it, right? But what is it? But why does he need to be regenerated? What is the, What does regeneration do? You're dead, right? Okay, so regeneration deals with man's spiritual death. It deals with man's spiritual death. So regeneration presupposes that you were dead. Right? Dead in your trespasses and sins. And Colossians 2.13 says, And when you were dead in your transgressions and the uncircumcision of your flesh, He, that's God, made you alive together with Him. Right? So that's regeneration. What about justification? What does that presuppose? With confidence. (laughs) What? Guilty with a deep voice that time. (laughs) It presupposes condemnation. Justification presupposes condemnation. So everything that God is applying to man presupposes a prior condition, a truth about man. That he was once dead. Justification presupposes he was once guilty. He was once condemned uh, under the weight of sin. And so it deals with uh, man's real guilt before God. As it says in Romans 5, 1, Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God. So justification, the doctrine of justification, when it's applied, it presupposes that before there was no peace with God. Just condemnation. Only guilt hanging over the sinner's head as this very roof is over you today. Sanctification, what does it presuppose? 
When God definitively sanctifies a man. That you're unclean. What else? That you weren't holy. <laughs> that you weren't holy. Amen. That you weren't holy. You were an enemy of God. <laughs> you will be. That's right. If you don't repent. But listen. Sanctification deals with how God is sanctifying men. How God is separating them from the realm of sin. As pastor has preached on Colossians 1.13, it tells us that in the believers they, there has taken place a divine deliverance from the domain of darkness. That is the definitive sanctifying work of the Spirit of God purchased by the Son which is applied to the sinner. That he has been divinely delivered from a domain of darkness. This is God separating him from sin unto a life of service to God. And not only this, but in Romans 6.14, believers are delivered from the dominion of sin's mastery. The dominion of sin's power. And so there are only two kinds of people in the world. Those who are dead to sin and those who are dead in sin. If you are dead to sin, that means God has sanctified you. God has separated you from a life of sin. As you see in Romans 6, you read that whole chapter, you'll see the definitive work of the sanctifying operations of the Spirit of God upon men. And so sanctification, it presupposes that you are separated from God. And so all of these different things you can see, uh, a, a, a prior condition... Uh, a prior state upon man. Just look at what God does to man. And that presupposes what kind of condition man was in. So go ahead and turn with me to Romans 3. I have an incredible prop today. I never do this. I'm not good at props, I'm not good at illustrations. Sin. What are the effects of sin? I've got dye in my hand. I've got a little glass of water right here. Hope that's enough water. One sin, one drop. I'm putting it in here. And over time, you can, I'll give you permission to glance at that if you want to take a look at it while I'm speaking. But I want to show you the effects of sin because what happened by one sin in the garden is I want to show you and describe to you and define what were the effects of, of that sin which took place. Look at Robert. He's just like mesmerized. I'm just watching it. The effects. I think, I think the experiment may fail. No, it won't. It won't. It won't. But listen, my, I actually, because me and my wife are decorating a cake. Yeah, I, I sometimes I decorate. But, but <laughs> listen, we were, decorating, uh, we were decorating cake, and at first we had... Um, uh, gel food coloring and I put that in there and it just sank to the bottom and it didn't do anything so I, I had my wife go buy this it does work I did it last night <laughs> to make sure just to make sure put a little finger <laughs> yeah. stir it up like, that's the law right stirring up sin <laughs> so <sighs> man was originally created upright and um, 
there's a there's a real severity to the truth that we're going to be speaking about and and um, just the effects of sin. You, you, you just well, remember what we talked about last night. The glory man is the image and the glory of God. He reflects his maker and in sin, God sees his own image turning against him. God sees his own image transgressing his very command in the garden. And so as, re, as, you're, as you're in Romans 3, I want to reread uh, Ecclesiastes 7.29. Behold, I have found only this, that God made man upright. Speaking about his uh, initial state of innocence and moral righteousness, not imputed righteousness, but he was morally righteous, able to obey God, and did that for a time. But they have sought out many schemes. Romans 3 says this, What then, and he is leveling a charge against them, that both Jews and Greeks are all under sin. That means that the, the, the Jews were a special people of God in the world. Greeks mean everyone outside of this world. Everyone outside of the Jewish world. So Jews and Greeks in the Bible speaks about the whole earth. All of the population under heaven. Uh, all of the population of man under heaven. He's saying everyone are under sin because of the fall. There is none righteous. Look at this. There is none righteous, not even one, not your mom, right? Not even one, not your daughter, not your son, not your neighbor, right? There's not your pastor, uh, whoever you want to name, not even one. And he goes on and he says, there is none who understands, who can, reasons, who can reason to God, who understands God. No, there is none who seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become useless. There is none who does good. There is not even one. That their throat is an open grave. With their tongues they keep deceiving the poison of ass is under their lips, whose mouth is full of cursing and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Destruction and misery are in their paths, and the, and the path of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. So not only do these verses proclaim the universality of sin, that the whole world is shut up, under sin and this is they are guilty of that sin it also affirms that the fallenness of man uh, that in his spiritual condition he is totally depraved this is working little by little but i want you to understand something because i believe that the doctrine of total depravity is really not understood um, there are a lot of misconceptions about total depravity and what people might think of it. And so, well, let me, I'll first, I'll first begin this. How would you define total depravity? Like putting dye in water and washing it. <laughs> <laughs> it corrupts everything. It changes everything. What does? The, whole, the mm. yeah, the sin, the wickedness, it ends up corrupting all of the person. Amen. And I was just going to touch on what he said, but 
it's the it's the utter pervasiveness of sin and mm. the soul of man to where it affects every facet of man's being. Yeah. In that it shows itself uh, in in the worst aspects, but it has affected every aspect of man. Mm, amen. Amen. And you're not the worst that they can be. That's right. That's right. We'll get into that too. So when the Bible describes fallen man, what are some of the words that it uses to describe fallen man? What do you think? Hostile towards God. Hostile Wicked. Enslaved. Amen. That's right. Spiritually dead. That's right. That's right. They're blind. Right? Blinded. They live in darkness. Love darkness. Uh, Their heart is incurably sick. As Jeremiah. And they are alienated from the life of God. They live in a realm of sin, a realm of darkness, blindness and alienation and enmity uh, to God. And so here's a definition that I like. Robert Raymond says this, Man, in his raw natural state, as he comes from the womb, is morally and spiritually corrupt in disposition and character. Every part of his being, just like what y'all were just saying, every part of his being, his mind, his will, his emotions, his affections, his conscience, his body, has been affected by sin. And so this is what we mean when we talk about total depravity. He is totally depraved. He is completely depraved. He, He is wholly, entirely, perfectly, thoroughly depraved throughout his whole being and every faculty uh, by, uh, of which he is made up of. Every faculty is thoroughly depraved and affected by sin, right? So let's get into some verses. Uh, I, I definitely want to get into this and see what does the Bible say about this uh, because it's not just in the New Testament. Let's go to uh, Genesis 6-5 and I need a reader for that verse. And so what we're going to level here is that Right from the fall of man, you can see the condition of man. You can see the effects of sin. And you can see how man is now operating without God in the world. And so, Brother Robert, uh, Genesis 6, 5. Then the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great on the earth, and that every intent of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. Wow. Now, that's incredible. So when it says that, and that every intent of the thoughts of his heart, that word in the Hebrew, that yetzer, that word literally means form or substance. That the very substance of his thoughts were only evil. The very substance of his thoughts, the very DNA, the makeup of his thoughts were only evil. And that word only is actually in the Hebrew text. It means without exception. All of his thoughts were evil without exception. Nothing but evil continually. That word continually just means all the time. So his thoughts were nothing but evil without exception all the time. We could probably end and go to worship there. I mean, this this is the depravity of man right out of the door. Right out of of the first um, uh, 
where he the the where man first commits sin, where he first performs his first act of iniquity. This is what it says about his condition. And so go to uh, I'll go ahead and read Genesis eight twenty one. That the Lord did you have a question? No, it's just one of my favorites. Amen. As the Lord smelled the soothing aroma, and the Lord said to himself, I will never curse the ground on account of man again, for the intent, that's Yetzer, that's the same word that's used, the intent of man's heart is evil. Now this speaks about not just all the time, but here it goes on and talks about from his youth, from his very childhood, that all those little precious babies you're carrying, it says that their thoughts are full of evil. That they're, right? They are precious. But they are evil. Uh, they still, we talked about that people still bear the image of God, right? The Bible goes on and it's, it's replete with evidence of the fact that we are still made in the image of God, even after the fall, though we do not display accurately the glory and image of our Creator as we did in innocence and moral righteousness and, and knowledge uh, in the beginning. A couple more verses for you, and I'll kind of read some of, some of these for you. The wicked are estranged from the womb. These who speak lies go astray from birth. That's Psalm 58, 3. Psalm 130, verse 3 says, If you, O Lord, if you, Lord, should mark iniquities, O Lord, who could stand? The universality of sin. It has completely and perfectly affected every being, every person, because of his union to Adam, because he is a descendant of Adam, God has imputed Adam's sin to this man, to this woman. Who could stand? Indeed, Ecclesiastes 7.20 says this, There is not a righteous man on earth who continually does good and who never sins. And this is talking about man's corruption. That, and then Jeremiah 17, 9, he says, The heart is more deceitful than all else and is desperately sick. The Hebrew literally means it's beyond human cure. The heart is desperately sick. The heart is incurable. Who can understand it? And so how sick is the heart? That before man fell into sin, the heart was really a fountain of purity. It was a fountain of, it, what flowed from it was right affections. They did the things that were pleasing to God. Man was made upright, he was good, made in the image of glory and God. You would expect these things to be true of his heart. And now this text is saying that it is a fountain of pollution and iniquity, that nothing good flows from man's heart. Jesus goes on and says, talks about this exact same thing. And so you can look at the condition of, of man's fallen heart in Matthew uh, Matthew 15, if you want to turn there with me. Matthew 15, 17 through 20, and we're talking about total depravity here. In connection with Jeremiah 17, 9, how sick is the heart? It's beyond human cure. Matthew fifteen seventeen says this, Do you not understand... Jesus speaking on what defiles man. Do you not understand that everything that goes into the mouth passes into the stomach and is eliminated? But the things that proceed out of the mouth come from the heart. That thing which is sick and incurably evil. He says those things which, which uh, come from the heart, those are the things which defile the man. 
For out of the heart come evil thoughts, murders, adulteries, fornications, thefts, false witness, slanders. These are the things which defile the man. And let me know if you have any questions. This is the state of the heart of man. And we could go on with more verses about this. Even man's affections are pervasively corrupt and they have been so perverted that even in Romans 3 it says that no one uh, no one is good no one seeks for God no one seeks for God but they are seeking something evil men absolutely seek things they seek the things that please them as you see in the bible that men are lovers of pleasures rather than lovers of God. They don't naturally seek man, that even in the fall, his affections were affected by sin. And so that is the issue. Thomas Boston says this. He says, The natural man's affections are wretchedly misplaced. He is a spiritual monster. His heart is where his feet should be fixed on the earth. His heels are lifted up against heaven, which his heart should be set on. His face is towards hell. His back is towards heaven. He loves what he should hate and hates what he should love. He joys in what he ought to mourn for and mourns for what he ought to rejoice in. He abhors what he should desire and desires what he should abhor. Men have become lovers of pleasure lovers of themselves rather than lovers of god you see this is what sin does to men and you see this is working here that it 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 thoroughly sin thoroughly affects you totally affects you completely absolutely sin is pervasive and it's spread and affects on the constitution of man And so these are just a few verses of what the Bible says about man's fallen nature, that he is totally depraved, pervasively corrupted by sin. And so all the faculties of man's being are infected with this disease. He's incurably sick. Only God can fix him. Only God can fix him. He's totally depraved. And so I think as Brother Bess was just saying, it's not to say that man acts as bad as he ought to. Right? doesn't, by God's restraining grace, he does not act as bad as he ought to act. And, he, and he's, not, uh, he's, he's not as bad as he can possibly be. Right? What's that? Right. And he's not. He is not pushing into or pressing into the depths by God's grace of sin's influence and sin's pull. Uh, in in the life of a sinner by God's grace. Um, And so you can see that sin has not so transformed man that he has succumbed to some lower state of that of a brutish beast, right? He's not an unreasonable animal. He can still reason, though the faculties of his mind are fallen, They are darkened and they are redirected by sin. Because of sin, they're no longer being used for the purpose which they were created for. And so we know that man can can do some good, for instance, like social good, I would say. 
civil good that even an unbeliever can serve their wife or uh, an unbelieving wife can serve their believing husband, right? There can be things that you can appreciate um, in an unbeliever because they're made in the image of God. At times, they're going to reflect him, right, consistently. Uh, But that doesn't mean there's anything in them that can that will commend themselves to God. There's nothing in them that can please God, though something might be pleasing to you or pleasing to me. There can be something we appreciate about someone, but they absolutely are not pleasing to God. Does that make sense? Amen. That's right. In God's eyes, all of man's good works are filthy rags. That not only is your wickedness terrible in the eyes of God, but your righteousness is terrible in the eyes of God. You must have a new righteousness given to you. This is the plight of man. His goodness is bad and his righteousness is bad. It's all bad. It's all filthy in God's sight. You must, you must receive an alien righteousness. What do I mean by that? Outside of yourself. Outside of yourself the righteousness of Jesus Christ, you must receive that. That is the only thing that God will accept. Total inability. Now, this flows from total depravity, right? It is founded on man's depravity because he is totally depraved, thoroughly, pervasively affected by sin and all of his faculties. He is totally unable to do what is pleasing to God. And so this speaks of man's moral limitations, which are defined by one's fallen nature. You're limited because of the nature you partake of. And so man, fallen man can only do that which is consistent to his nature. Because he is totally depraved, he is confined to the powers of that nature. He is confined to the realm of that nature. And because he is in the realm of sin, because without faith it is impossible to please God, he is incapable of changing his character and he is incapable of the possibility of doing anything that is good in that nature. That nature must pass away. A new nature must come that he can properly and consistently honor God, magnify God in that nature, in that new nature uh, by union with Christ. Any questions? I think what uh, said is that if we believe that man is depraved, uh, as you're saying, and he can only do is consistent with his nature, and that supports what we believe as far as total inability, mm-hmm. right? And, and the idea that uh, there's nothing that we can do to save ourselves. Right. Because man will never, just like, for example, free will. He will never, he will never choose his, he will choose the good, he will never exercise his powers of volition, mm-hmm. for example, to repent. Right. Because that's not something he's capable of doing because that's not consistent with his nature. Right. So it just supports our notion of Calvinism. Right, right. Yeah. (laughs) That's a good point. I'll give you an example. 
say you have two plates before you, two plates of food before you. On this one plate, oh, you're like, man, I just, I haven't even eaten yet, right? You haven't even, right? There's two plates of food before you. One of them is this uh, medium, medium well, medium rare, however you like your steak. Think of your perfect steak. Put it on this plate right here with potatoes, whatever you eat, right? What is your perfect dish? Put it right here, this juicy deliciousness. And on this other side, right? And this represents the things of God, the, the precious things, right? Just go with me here. It, it, this is what that represents. It represents what man should choose. And on this other side, because he's blinded, he's, his, his mind is darkened, this other side is trash. It's just fried, moldy bread that was in the garbage. It's, it's, it's got something growing on it. And it's got just like ketchup and mustard on it. And it's just, um, and, and there's just like, there's a, there's a bug in there. There's just something gross, right? <laughs> because of man's will and his affections, they're so fallen. He only has the ability to choose which dish? The, no, not the steak. He only has the ability to choose that which is terrible for him. He only has the ability to choose this, this, right? There's two different lifestyles. We have the righteous, the wicked, and there's two different ways you can live to please God, not please God, to, to live in righteousness or to live an unrighteous life. And the glories and the excellencies of God are over here. And then you have all of man's sin and his desire to please himself, to seek his own pleasures, and that is the garbage that is going to send him to hell. And what is he going to do? The excellencies and glories of God over here or that which he can use to please himself and to satisfy the lusts of his flesh, he'll always choose the garbage. He can't choose the other one. He can't choose it. This one is actually more pleasing in his sight and he's unable to choose the other one without the intervention of the omnipotent, salvific arm of God. He cannot choose the glories and excellencies of Christ. He is unable to do so. Now, Jeremiah thirteen twenty three says this, Can the Ethiopian change his skin? Or the leopard his spots? Can a leopard change his spots? He can't change his spots, Right? then you also can do good who are accustomed to doing evil, right? What is that saying? The the Ethiopian by nature has his skin, the color it is, the way it is. And the leopard by nature has his spots. And the sinners by nature are accustomed to doing evil. They can't do anything else but evil, right? They can't do anything else but evil. Yes, brother? Also, like Romans 8, 7 says, that is set on the flesh is hostile to God. Right. Right. Of inability. Yeah. Anybody else? Yes. Uh, well, I think that Second Timothy two really gives us a, a, a nice understanding of this a little bit further and deeper. Um, speaking about how. Uh, we're, cor- we're supposed to be correcting those who are in opposition to God, and perhaps that God may grant them repentance, leading them into the knowledge of the truth, and that they may come to their senses and escape the snare of the devil, having been held captive 
by him to do his will. Amen. That is the state of the unbeliever. That was, if you're saved, that was who you used to be, the condition of your soul in Adam. Let me take you, uh, I'll take you to a couple, turn me to John 3. And we just have a couple of minutes here. Oh no, we, we got, yeah, we got about seven or eight minutes. That's good. Yes. So, um, is this, uh, is this just a fact that man's a sinner, or does this have to do with our nature, specifically being of an earthly nature? Because when I think of Adam, even in his pre-fall state, he still found the trash and the bug and the food appealing. Um, mm-hmm. So is this something that's, that has to do with the fact that we're made from dust? We would always find that appealing because it's sin specifically. That's the reason for that attraction. Yeah, well, I would... First Corinthians 15, too, and he speaks of the earthly versus the spiritual. Yeah, um, I would say that God had originally man, made man with the freedom of will, right? With the freedom of choice that he can choose between. He wasn't confined to only choosing righteousness. So the nature in which you are is not, um, is not equivalent to the nature by which Adam first lived in, right? So we do have, so right now we are by nature children of wrath, right? Um, that Christ died uh, when we were yet sinners, right? That we were made sinners, and Adam was not, though he did have the freedom of choice, Right? Whether or not because he was in a time of probation and God had given, given him his law, his commandment that he had to obey and he was in a time of testing and he had the ability to choose um, whether or not he would obey that command. Anything else, Pastor? That's a good question. That's a great question because it goes back to the origin of sin. And the origin of sin is very difficult. And the question to answer is mm-hmm. because we really don't know. Sure. I've read all the systematic theology on that question, and they all say that we don't know. Right, right. That's what my answer is. Yeah, amen. Is that, is that kind of helpful? Let's, um, yeah, okay. Hold, hold on a second. Say that again. No, I just wanted to 
same, you know, uh, happens, you know, not always takes time to, you know, to c contaminate. Mm -hmm. And also, you know, the consequences of sin can last a lifetime. Right. Yeah. Amen. Yeah, that's incredible that uh, what happened in the fall, what John Murray would call that when Adam had first sinned and his eyes were open, his nakedness was revealed, his conscience being pricked by guilt, he would call that an internal revolution of a transformation of all of his faculties by sin, just being tainted and affected, all, all of them being totally depraved, meaning thoroughly affected by that one sin, that he went from a state of innocence to a state of condemnation after that one sin. Incredible. So totally depraved. He was thoroughly affected by that one sin. It reached every faculty in a moment of time. And so uh, let's, um, let's, I, I have a couple of objections here that I'd like to talk about. I'll skip a couple of things here. Some objections to total depravity. One of them is this, and I want, I, want, I want to know how you would respond to these objections. You ready? The teaching of the doctrine of total depravity is off-putting, and it discourages the lost from coming to Christ because it tells them that they are not good. How do you answer that? Exactly. <laughs> you just say, Amen. Yeah. Amen. Amen. If you don't tell men about the depravity, about their own depravity, right? You teach them about it; it puts them off. I would say that's the only thing that will bring them near to Christ, right? Far from putting them off, which of course if they're going to get upset, but it's the only thing that can drive them near. They must know who they are; that they are without all of their faculties are tainted with sin. There's nothing good in them. Nothing good in them. They do not have the ability to please God. They are not even able to do so, as we just read in, in Romans 8. And so uh, they must know those things. Far from discouraging, we must reveal the, fa to the fact that men are in a terrible condition by nature and that there is a great Savior who can meet the needs and who can... Uh, provide mercy for the miseries of that sin, the miseries of, those, of that bondage. We have a Christ, uh, a great Christ for our need, as that quote says. Yes, brother. Uh, just further answering the question there, uh, you know, I would tell them kind of what you said earlier you know, when you asked about you know, if, we do, if we do not fully understand the sinfulness of man, then how can we understand the, the gospel in the same way if they don't understand it? That's right. And there's total undoneness before God, then they have reason to say, oh, I'm, I'm really not that bad. I'm, I'm okay. Mm -hmm. Whereas if you don't tell them the truth, or if you do tell them the truth, then it can cause them, by God's grace, His work to drive them to themselves. Mm -hmm. Far more damning is not telling them who they are, that they're actually good. Because they'll rely on that. They'll feast on that. They'll live in that. Next objection is this before we go to worship. How do you reconcile the fact that God commands men to respond and obey Him, though they do not have the ability to do so? Right? How can God require men to do that which they cannot do? Supernatural work. He enables us to do what us to do. 
he gives us the grace to do it. In an unconverted state, right? I'm trying to think of the quote from Augustine. Uh, hmm. but I can't, he says, like, uh, help me command you. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Uh-huh. Yeah. That, that's helpful. So an unbeliever... Hmm. What's that? That's right. So God, what God is? God is actively commanding, right? To repent. But they can't do it, huh? Yeah. In a in a sense, this is this would be my answer. Um, is since man is a covenant creature of God, right? And he deals with him, he deals with him primarily on the basis of obligation. So God can command something of us because uh, he primarily deals with us on the, on the basis of, or on the, uh, on the basis of obligation and not creaturely ability, Right. God has never, he, 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 we, he, we first had the ability and we first had the obligation, right? God has not taken away the obligation, but man by his sin has taken away his ability. So the obligation still stands, though his ability is lost. So God is, is he, he, the obligation from God, he still is able to hold us accountable to himself, though you by sin don't have the ability to do so, right? Yes. Mm-hmm. Right. That's right. He doesn't. God cannot change that which he is, that which he obliges man to conform to. If God were to compromise and only hold you accountable for that which you're able to, you know that he would have to compromise his standards of holiness to nothing. Because we don't have the ability to do anything, right? He'd have to compromise his standards to your ability. What are you able to do? Nothing. So God's standards would be completely wiped away if he did not hold you accountable and uh, to obligation because you are his creature. And so it would. It would. He would cease to become God if, if he would give up the reins of his justice and the way that he governs and is, con- is in control. Uh, and so the question, as John Murray puts it, he says, the question is not at all, how can God, being what he is, send men to hell, right? The question is, how can God, being what, it, being what he is, save men from hell, right? And so he has done that in Jesus Christ. Hallelujah. Amen. Well, let's go to worship.